When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my channels. Today's guest is James Lindsay, who I've had on before, and if you don't know, you must be not in the loops that I loop myself around. James Lindsay is an author, a theoretician, and has been concentrating for the last three years on pinpointing the operational rubric of critical theory in academia and how it's spreading outside of academia through various different institutions. James Lindsay joins me today to talk about that as well as his new platform, newdiscourses.com, which is a collection of resources for those who want to understand the breadth and the depth of social justice theory, postmodern activism, critical theory, and the various different studies that are attached to that. This is a brilliant conversation with an encyclopedic mind. Also, towards the end, there's a lot of cocktail advice if you're into, I guess, whiskeys and gins and tequilas and uh, mixing those things with other things to make a pleasant evening sippery activity. Without further ado, here's James Lindsay. Is it going to crash? It's probably going to crash. You're going to crash. You're going to crash. It always burn, crashes. Dude. I know. Don't even like poke at that because I'm so stressed out. Should we do some uh, Tai Chi before we begin here? A... Not a bad idea. Like some single whip or something. I don't know. It's been a while since I've done Tai Chi. How you doing? I'm pretty good, actually. How are you? Good to be back talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. You are in like uh, high performance mode right now. You're about to launch this tremendous project. I flipped through it. It's amazing what you've put together in the last, what, two, six months? Two, really. I mean, we've been kind of talking about it and building it out for about six or so. That's right. And then um, as far as like, it becoming a real thing instead of it just being kind of like a, you know, we're going to do this sooner or later kind of project. It's, it has been, it was December 22nd is when I really kicked it into, you know, full gear for producing something to read on the site. So yeah, it's been two was there months. A flash point right on. That caused for, you for wanting to, to make production to make new. No, um, not specifically. Uh, like I said, we've kind of been flirting with the idea of building a website, media resource, educational kind of business around the work that we're doing to aggregate um, the articles, the videos, and so on. And over the course of last year, we we did a lot of discussion about what that might look like. Uh, and sometime late in the summer, we decided that this thing that you've seen, New Discourses, you know, at newdiscourses.com is the way we're going to go, kind of a media educational site where we're going to provide articles and lots of educational resources and various other, you know, things that people can can read either to understand what's going on with, with critical social justice better or that they can go put into application, you know, to try to 
address the problem as it comes up where they are. And eventually, and hopefully even immediately, we can talk also about issues that reach beyond just critical social justice and talk about basically anything that's constraining our discourses, as it were. So the, the, the site's called New Discourses. And the idea is that our political conversation's basically screwed. So we want to expand mm-hmm. that. And anything that's screwing it, we want to basically be there to to shed some some light on it. You know, I have to say, New Discourses sounds rather modernist, just from a n- naming conventions. It is, actually. I'm glad that you recognize that. It wasn't totally intentionally modernist. I'm not particularly a modernist in the narrow sense, but I am a big defender of modernity. So I am a modernist in the broader sense. Is Helen and I, for example, have written extensively and I've spoken about and written about and podcasted about and whatever else about so many times. Um, the idea, actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about why I called it New Discourses, which um, I felt was very clever. And I very rarely amuse myself <laughs> with my own cleverness. Um, I doubt that. I mean, you're... You no, I mean sometimes like we get in our little things on Twitter, and you're you're a very clever guy, and um, I I don't know I like to be clever sometimes, but it's pretty rare that I, I feel like I really um, hit something with the idea of new discourses because um, discourses means two things, um, and I mean them both at the same time. So it's kind of almost postmodern in that regard in one way because I'm intentionally using a doubling of language to mean two things at once. Um, as a matter of fact, and I'm doing so in order to fight that exact problem, which is even just more, uh, you know, chef's kiss glorious. Um, Mm. so, so discourses mean like our conversations, our dialogues and so on. Let's sit down and have some rational discourse about gun control or climate change or whatever it is. Right. And so those are something that I feel like, you know, we've gotten this real rut this existential polarization in our society where, you know, it's all you libtards and you conservative Nazis or whatever it is. And we're just kind of going in circles, talking past each other and not able to have genuine dialogue very successfully. And part of the reason is because of the other meaning of the word discourses, which discourses formally, this being a very central focus of the postmodern thing, um, refers to the way things are legitimately spoken about. So uh, the discourses, say, for law would be the way that lawyers speak to one another, the way that they understand legal terminology, um, the way that issues are talked about within a legal context and so on. So you have this idea that discourses also means, as Helen likes to phrase it, Helen Plucker likes to phrase it, um, ways things are spoken about. And Mm -hmm. I feel like those are stuck, too. And as a matter of fact, what we have right now is we have this really weird kind of post-truth environment, probably mostly as a result of social media. And in this post-truth environment, a lot of stuff just kind of comes down to narrative. And so when you have kind of these big, overarching, almost meta-narrative type structures happening, like critical social justice or, you know, whatever it is that's happening from the con- the conservative populism movement or whatever it happens to be, uh, they can they can actually start to constrain the discourse. It's like there's only one legitimate way to talk about racism or there's only one legitimate way to talk about guns or there's only one legitimate way to talk about the climate. And I'm tired of it. 
So that's a touch point or a flash point to decide to want to do this. Um, you know, there was there was a tweet that you sent out in December that got a huge amount of uh, attention to it. And you said, I'm going to paraphrase it, that you'd rather live in a society with um, vestigial racism than in an actively uh, anti-racist society. Uh, do you remember the exact phrase? Because the phrasing really matters. I think you actually hit it. I think that's right. I was like, I don't think you're paraphrasing it. Are you quoting me? Um, I thought you were just being modest while you read it or something. It's very close but, to that. I don't remember the exact phrasing. I don't ever keep up with, like, I wish I had one of those memories where I could remember exactly what I said. And I think people who work with me, uh, cough, cough, Mike Nana, who are making a film <laughs> and want me to say a thing again, want me to be able to remember what I just said a little better than yeah. I do. Um, but it was very close to that. And it was something along the lines of I would and I, I genuinely would rather live in a society where we have vestigial traces of racism rather than one that is aggressively and that's important and aggressively yeah. anti-racist. And I mean anti-racist because of the word aggressive is a little, you know, I can slip a little bit and not have to be as technical with anti-racism. But anti-racism, I did mean in the technical formal sense as it's been defined in what's called the critical whiteness literature and critical race literature. <laughs> and and why I bring that up is because it, seem, it seems like there's a pattern of behavior of reactionary um, affront uh, that people get from your Twitter feed. Uh, and, and it's a specific <laughs> community that has a lot of connections. So when they get riled up, they, they get riled up in mass. And it seems to me, I want to postulate that they get so upset with you because you are using, you're entering into that formal discourse. You're using the correct terms, the technical terms. So you're playing their game and and you're deconstructing it within that. If if you weren't speaking academies, I don't think that they would truck with you as much. It seems like I because you're entering into that discourse, technically speaking, mm -hmm. that's where they have a problem with you. Was yeah, I think you're putting your finger. I I think you've put your finger on it. As a matter of fact, that's also really one of the things that um, led me to do, I mean, we're going to talk around it until we start talking about it. The the kind of big operation that started in December um, on New Discourses, the platform, it really wants to dive into the, the terminology. And so my appreciation right now is that you have a lot of people, and I don't think that a lot of them are doing it intentionally, and I do think some of them are doing it intentionally, and I don't have the the resources to definitively say, oh, it's this person doing that and this person. I'm not going to try to label people as, as, you know, willful political operatives or whatever here, but some people certainly know what they're doing in this regard. But the thing is, is that a lot of words mean something in everyday parlance that people hear and they, they act upon and react to. And then they mean something completely different in the formal academies, the formal, which in fact, a lot of the academies, I mean, we have phrases like privilege preserving epistemic pushback, which is clearly some kind of academic stuff or even positionality. We start adding mm -hmm. these suffixes, suffixes to things where it's clearly academic jargony, but then you have ideas like authenticity and engagement and, uh, Racism. you know, kind of very, Racism, very, very, yeah, the the super ordinary words that we're all kind of familiar with, and they're not using them the same way that other people are using them, and they use a lot of these words constantly. So there's a lot of miscommunication. So obviously, 
um, I hope obviously, maybe it's not obvious, but it's true that I am not in favor of racism. In fact, if we were to use the common parlance definition, I would say that we generally should have anti-racist societies, meaning that the general orientation of society and most of its members are against racism where it comes up and are willing to take some steps in that direction. I would be hesitant to take up an aggressive um, project of thought policing in any regard. So when we add the the modifier aggressively anti-racist, even under the common parlance definition, I start to get a little wary because McCarthyism was a thing. Um, and it's kind of happening again. It's, yeah, it's but then when you get to the technical definition that they actually mean, which is, if I'm quoting this correctly, a ongoing and lifelong commitment to a process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism. I, no. Uh, when hmm. you get to the formal definition of what they mean by anti-racism, I honestly think that you know they're talking about something completely different and intentionally at times and unintentionally at other times letting people think they mean the more normal common parlance thing so when they say america's a racist society or you know this this organization is racist or something like that they they know as activists that the understanding of that term that most of us have is doing the work for them but they mean something different. When they say the organization's racist, they mean something very specific that when most of us heard it, if we actually sat down and spent a couple of hours listening to it, you'd say, okay, there's a point there. I understand there is some work to be done here, but this isn't a crisis and nobody needs to react badly. Uh, we don't need to take this massively personally and freak out and, and do whatever. But they are depending upon the fact that people aren't going to do that and yeah. that they are going to freak out at being accused of being racist or having a racist organization. And knowing that if that were, say, that PR were to get out, you know, the such and such deli is a racist restaurant, you know, yeah. that there would be outcry down, i mean you live in portland so we or no you don't you live in you live in well, washington sorry enough. you live near portland yeah. close enough you live in the pacific northwest so you know what's going on um well, you know they shut down restaurants and stuff over these kinds of accusations they break windows and you know, massive campaigns against against small businesses large businesses whatever businesses because of this obfuscation about language yeah, so I don't think we that the world that. needs. I don't think the world needs a new word, but there is a phenomena that I want to call phrase shifting, where I uh, like that, and it happens over and over and over again. And they do it. I and sometimes they don't do it intentionally, but they. I really do think that, insofar as they are academics, they're trying to understand the world. Insofar as they're activists, they're trying to change the world, and they. Mm -hmm. You can't be both. They will always default to activism. You will always you always position yourself in the position of being able to define power and to mediate power and then to uh, assumably probably be the one who has the power at the end of the day. And they use that with language, um, which they is do. a betrayal of, of, of wordplay in a way. It's and, and a lot of this postmodern stuff, it's like in the arts, at least with literature, it's very fun. To go from one voice to another, to deconstruct how a narrative happens, right? But when it when right. it has that that uh, purpose to change the world in some way, it gets corrupted and it, it kind of goes down a notch from something fun into something kind of frightful. No, I hear you. Like last night, I, we had family movie night and we went and we watched um, we watched Knives, Knives Out. Out. 
and uh, yeah, I tweeted about that last night. And so it was really interesting because I was watching it at first, you know, I, I don't want to spoil the film for anybody. So I'll be careful as sort of. But at first I was watching it. I didn't know what was going on because I didn't realize that it was portraying people's memories, which are um, inaccurate. And in fact, not even just their memories, but the stories that they were telling. And so you would get, you know, kind of the same scene shown again and again and again differently. And I had no idea what was going on. And then I realized it like it clicked and I was like, oh, well, that's that would be so much fun to play with and to kind of show that whether it's the way people remember. I mean, you could you could make an entire film if you're into filmmaking about the idea of different people remembering the same event differently. And really, you could do some cool stuff showing that. So there's, I think there's a ton of room to play with language and with with in that case it's not quite language where you know you get you get my meaning there's a ton of yeah, room to yeah. play with that kind of stuff and i love to do that actually with language i do love the double meaning game that they play i love double and triple entendres um yeah. i think that stuff's really great but like you said when you start doing that as a matter of um of, of activism and especially if you're doing it intentionally as such then you've got a real problem because that's propaganda. That's no that's longer responsible. It is. It is. It is manipulation. In a negative sense. So, yeah. when you try to tell somebody that their organization is racist, as you saw, as we all saw, as you documented so well about Evergreen, um, and people react the way they predictably will. And in fact, the reason I can say, to be honest, that I know that they're aware of this is because Robin D'Angelo, in her famous book, White Fragility, dedicates an entire chapter pretty much to talking about the fact that she knows that this is how people are going to hear it when she calls them a racist or a white supremacist. And she says in there, she even says, if that's you, you can breathe. That's not what I mean. I mean something different. Then the rest of the book is basically that everything in the universe and every white person is a racist. <laughs> And more than that, the I love her, even though like she's the most terrible person to me on, on just a visceral my level. Favorite, I am absolutely in love with Robin D'Angelo's work. She could not be making my job easier at, for exposing what's up with with critical social justice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. She is a gold mine. Uh, she says it plainly. She says it like she's talking to a ten year old. She says it condescendingly. It's not like reading, say, for example, Barbara Applebaum the. Um, yeah, critical whiteness philosopher. Who, a critical. Risk. No, no, that's Peggy McIntosh. Barbara Applebaum okay. was being good, be, being white, being good, uh, and it's about white complicity and and race ignorance. And it's this philosophical book that expands the idea of complicity, so that even things that you don't have any participation in whatsoever, you can be considered complicit in, uh, namely being white and and very specifically being white. The whole book is a project to expand the idea, but she, it's like four or five pages of just waffle to get to any point and the philosopher. And then D'Angelo's just like, let me write this horrible five page chapter about white women crying and how it's a political act to run over black women. And it's like, holy crap. It's like <laughs> right there. It's just right there. But the, no, but they do. They do know that, that the words that they're using are being heard one way and then um, they're using them that they're using them irresponsibly anyway. And when Robin D'Angelo tries to come out and say, as I'm sure she would, um, well, you know, I very clearly said what I meant. I very clearly distinguish in all of my books, and she does. I can't criticize her for it. She puts it usually in little, like, colored boxes that say, remember, I mean white supremacy different than the way you mean it. And, I mean, she really does. She takes pains to make sure it's obvious. But the average person who's now using her content, content yeah. isn't reading the disclaimer chapter. 
They're just going out and saying, you know, you reacting badly is white fragility and white fragility is proof of your complicity in racism and your desire to uphold the system. And how does she square that? Do you think she's obviously aware that this is open for abuse, but maybe it's abuse in the right direction? Is this like the, you know, the utopian project? I feel like there's I mean, I don't I can't speak for her motivations, obviously. I don't know. Um, There's definitely a strong feeling in a lot of their literature that the means justify the ends. I don't know if that's what Robin D'Angelo's deal is. I don't honestly care a whole lot um what her her motivations are but there is definitely a strong resonance and and there are other places where the means justify the ends is explicitly written not in that sentence but for example all the way back to like 1984 one of the foundational texts of um queer theory came from gail rubin and it's called thinking sex and she openly says that it would be easier to just admit that that sex and gender have something to do with biology. That's the easier thing to do, but it's less politically useful for radical change. So we have to do the hard work of um, Mm. taking on a fully socially constructivist view. And it's like, you know what you're doing. At that point, you know what you're doing, right? So, um, so new discourses to, to bring that up is, is really, I want to, I want to shine a light on that. One of my main objectives with the platform is to expose this stuff for what it actually is, critical social justice, but other things also eventually that that stymie our discourses, and then to explain how they think and why they think that way, and then hopefully to articulate alternative ways of approaching this, one of which is Uh, going to have to be taking back our language. uh, Okay, and which is one of the the main uh, pillars of of this website. if you want to bring that up, like the super project at the Sure, club. sure, sure. So for right now, the biggest thing I'm trying to accomplish on New Discourses is I've given it a cheeky name. I think it's cheeky. Again, I'm proud of my cleverness. Okay, maybe I'm proud of my cleverness a lot. <laughs> um, maybe you got me. You're a deep-digging investigative journalist. So what I mean <laughs> is um, – so at the heart of this thing right now, of course, there will be a lot more stuff as it develops. But at the heart of this thing, I am creating a um, social justice encyclopedia of terminology. I'm trying to – a plain language encyclopedia of social justice terminology is what I call it. But the the, the name for the thing is Translations from the Wokish. Um, so – what I'm trying to do and the format there's actually really interesting and important because you get accused of strawmanning these people every time. I think I know the theory so well now, like last night on Twitter, somebody came after me and was like, that's not what critical race theory says. And it's like, I, I just screenshotted like five sources saying exactly that. Yes, it does. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, so mm-hmm. I get accused of strawmanning this stuff all the time. And so the way that the, that the translations from the Wokish is organized on, on there is that it's going to have a whole bunch of entries. The goal of each entry, it's not to talk about like a theorist or say there's not going to be like a Kimberly Crenshaw entry. It's not that kind of encyclopedia. It is a It was originally a glossary, but then I was writing a thousand words per entry. And I'm like, well, this isn't a glossary anymore. I got to figure out what to call it. Um, it's more encyclopedic. And so what I what I do with each one is I actually start off with either a quote. Well, it's always a quote. Uh, it's either a, a definition that they give in their literature for the for the idea, the term at hand, or it's a uh, quote using that term in context 
or it's a, a some other kind of an example where the the term is relevant or a very closely from the neighboring literature. From the primary literature. So from I'm not going and scouring like everydayfeminism.com to find stuff. I am going, you know, it's a it's it's a joke, a page so bad people still aren't quite sure if it's a parody. Um, very hit, very, very well hidden parody. I'm going to primary sources, Kimberly Crenshaw, Robin D'Angelo, these books, these scholarly articles, the the critical race theory handbooks, for example, by like Delgado and Stefanczyk. I'm going to primary sources, academic papers, genuine resources, or sometimes I'm going to websites um, for like a university's diversity office mm-hmm. or a school's diversity implementation program and showing that these terms are being put into use and this is what they mean by them. And then here are more examples in context. So most of the entries have at least one, all the entries have at least one, most of the entries have at least two or three, and some of them have thousands of words of examples uh, drawn from the primary literature showing that they actually do use the words the way that I'm saying they use the words. And then I offer my own commentary, which ranges from a couple hundred words up to, I think the longest one's almost 3,000 words, explaining the idea of the concept, how the word gets used within the context of critical social justice, maybe how that differs from common common parlance, how it connects to other terms in the, in the social justice language um, discourse, I really should say. And I'm really just trying to show, you know, and this is what it looks like maybe when it's put in application, these kinds of things. So it's just, you know, a few hundred to a couple thousand words of explanation of how that term works. So that way we can actually, so this is the thing that they get mad at me about on Twitter. Um, We can actually start having an honest discussion about the ideas in social justice because we can actually put out this is when they when you read them saying diversity, this is the thing they actually mean. Now, now let's have the conversation now that we all know what the words mean um, to harken back to Evergreen real quick on that. It's like how they sent out the equity plan in an email the night before it was to be voted on and then didn't even have the link active in the email as has been revealed. You know, there's a lot of this kind of like. We can't have an honest – you couldn't have an honest conversation if any faculty showed up to the equity plan meeting because they didn't even know what was in the plan because it was never given to them until the, like, 11th hour and then only under the duress of Brett Weinstein uh, making it happen. And so this comes up a lot. So, you know what? I am not the kind of person who wants to tell people what they should believe. I think that critical social justice is bad. I have good reasons to think it's bad. I think there are better ways to do social justice, and I want to advocate for those. But I do think it's very important that if people are going to sit down and have a conversation about an idea or a concept, especially to put it into play in an institution or to badger people about mm-hmm. it on in their real lives, then we should all at least know what the word means together and have a clear-eyed ability to make that decision rather than one where everything's a bit murky. Mm-hmm. Again, that goes back to probably a philosophical problem of getting the deconstructionists or the post-structuralists to uh, allow for language to be solidified in an encyclopedic modern enlightenment manner. Do you see resistance on that level? This is very meta, but to, to stabilize these terms Will there not be resistance in that? Because something at the core of this is about the destabilization of discourse. Is that there will there will be some pushback on that? And I think I haven't done a lot on the site yet um, to 
so just so ever all your listeners, because I keep forgetting you've seen it and they haven't, um, because it doesn't come out for a day or two yet. Um, so I have about 400 terms identified that I needed to, to, to flesh out and give examples for the finding examples that are that are fair and good is a time consuming process, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. I have about 400 total I want to do. I've done some 80 something ish, 84, 86, something like that. Somewhere in there are, are actually done. Most of those, but not all of those are currently on the site. It turns out loading them up and doing all the cross-reference linking takes a bit of time too. Um, There's a lot in there. So there will be, especially when I get to fleshing out the queer theory side of things, it's mostly critical Mm. whiteness studies right now that's on there. When I get to the queer theory stuff, there will definitely be, be, there'll be some pushback on trying to codify. Um, Queer theory has its own papers criticizing itself for trying to codify itself. So okay. the fact that somebody outside of it or critical to it would try to do so is just going to be a nightmare for them. Um, mm-hmm. Could you, I do think, though, that that's, speak a, that's a, oh, oh, I was just going to say, I do think generally there will be that kind of pushback. People will try to start, as you said, was it phrase shifting? Yeah. Is that what you're – I love that. That that will start to happen. I think that the some of the sources that I'm exposing, which will be heavily in the Robin D'Angelo sec, uh, sector, are going to get um, kind of moved away from, and the meanings put out there will be kind of moved away from, and people will draw up other sources and say, ah, he cherry picked. It's only these particular scholars who, you know, these other scholars yeah, said this yeah, more reasonable yeah. thing. So we'll see a lot of that. A lot of this kind of like throwing dust and sand and smoke up so that. We aren't able to have a real conversation about the issues that that they're proposing. When you brought up queer theory about it, uh, certain parts of it trying to critique itself for codifying itself, it brings up to my mind like the image of they're they're trying to create like a a slime mold, something without structure at all, or something with the, the intimation of a structure. Like, how can an yeah. entity or a movement or a group, a, a body of thought? resist structure so much and still have some sort of structure in the world like what's the operating i have no no idea how they're gonna actually work that way but you are correct the 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 analogy to a slime mold is actually pretty good um and it's when we were writing our fake papers a couple of years ago one of the papers we had planned but it was going to require me to do a lot more reading in queer theory than i was prepared to do was to take the idea uh, take queer theory itself and the fact that it problematizes itself for for getting too structured and then to combine in this other idea that they have it's called gender fucking which is basically to fuck with gender uh mm-hmm. and i was going it's like to mess mess around with gender on purpose in order to fuck the concept in people's heads um as a form of activism. And so what I wanted to do is combine those and write a paper called fucking queer theory, which <laughs> I, I thought was really funny. <laughs> no, that's a good <laughs> fucking queer There's theory. a couple levels to that. <laughs> there are some levels on that one. Cause I thought that's why I thought it would get in. But so how does it operate though? Because it is really relevant. Queer theory. I'm not like leaving it out right now because it's irrelevant or whatever. I'm leaving it out because the easiest way to produce this thing, which I've been writing on frantically for a couple of months, it's like a hundred and something thousand words compiled uh, in two months. It's a lot. Um, the, The easiest way to do it is to get in one vein of literature and just start reading one source after another and taking up every term you run into. 
rather than mm-hmm. start with a term and go looking and say, where am I going to find this one? Where am I going to find that one? It's way more efficient and both mentally and, and in terms of your time to just stick with, you know, I'm going to read white fragility one today time. and pick out every word she put, she puts in there. Um, so you're, you're uh, doing a close reading, which is what they are trying to do with the, you're, you're using the same tool that they use to, to deconstruct everything, the close reading. Hopefully responsibly, yes. But they are. They're ripe for a deconstruction because they've got their meta, meta narrative and everything, and they call it the right side of history, and we've got to be on it. Um, mm-hmm. Queer theory, though, uh, is like the quintessential – it's like if you could take the the – you know, like with with good vodka, it's like five times distilled or whatever. If you could think of like the distillation of of quintessence five times in a row of, <laughs> if if you kind of follow what I mean there, of yeah, yeah, um, yeah. of uh, I'm of trying what? to think of what, what I want to say. I got so excited about saying quintessence five times in a row in the distillate. I started picturing making booze. I'm pulling a Rick Perry like I always do. So they are refining the idea that anything with norms is bad. And yes. so it is like the absolute multiple. That is a norm, though. Fuck. Isn't it? It's kind of funny, isn't it? That's what they criticize themselves for, though. Um it is the it is the quintessence of counterculture. That's the word I was trying to look for, and I lost. It's like I would say whatever the counterculture jerk, but, is. Yeah. Well, that's how they do. But um, hmm. it is like take whatever the counterculture is, and then distill that to like it's got to be more counterculture than that, more counterculture than hmm. that, more counterculture than that. But in particular, it's focused on blowing up the stable notions of, I mean, on the one scale, everything. But really, it's about sex, gender, and sexuality so they can create something like a cohesive um political activism by finding some kind of a a cause to parasite on to become a parasite Mm. onto so it was lgbt before but then that became not queer enough and now it's the trans rights activist people are drawing heavily on queer theory and eventually that won't be queer enough either because it'll mm-hmm. become stable and people will understand it and it, either it'll become a norm or it won't. If it becomes a norm, queer theory will have to destroy it. And so it'll be the – it's like whatever the – it is literally – when I say counterculture, it is like whatever the thing that people are doing is like you have to be avant-garde and be different, different than that, especially if it has to do with sex, gender, or sexuality. But keep in mind that fat studies and disability studies are also both – um, theorized under queering methods. You have this thing called CRIP studies that's kind of like using queer approach to disability studies and you have this other thing within fat studies where they talk about fatness as a kind of queerness. So, um, I just, I is there any, a, I'm really sorry to say this, but is there a retard studies yet? I just like, whenever I heard CRIP studies, I'm like, <laughs> is there going to be a TARD studies? Because that's like, that's like that would be the most, uh, you know, like edgy. Do you have thing. any idea how much? Do you have any idea how much I wish I was still writing papers right now? Fake papers to write tarred studies. Oh my god, that's so funny. <laughs> it would work. It would absolutely work. You would just draw off the crypt, the crypt studies, yeah. or and just deconstruct intelligence or functionality or anything like that works is actually oppressive. Oh yeah, right? oh, the, the 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 backing that that would have in the literature is astonishing. 
the amount of stuff that you could draw on to make that. that I mean, I could write this paper. I'm writing it in my head right now. I, I see so, you. I can see you writing. It's like, like the outline is forming, and it's like I know where I have to go to get the literature to do it. To to get. Oh my god, it would be so easy. Um, I don't think there is though. There. Are, I mean, okay. yeah. I don't think there is. So when what what I wanted to get to, and this is like we're you always pack so much in to whenever I talk to you, like we're already half, half an hour through our interview and it feels like this is two hours long because you're, you're so dense. But what I really wanted to get to was kind of a, the nugget of what I found on the site that I, that I didn't see you explain yet, which is post structuralism. And I wanted to preface okay. that because when I went through and tried to, I, that's one of those terms that I always forget. Like I, I relearn it mm-hmm. over and over and over again because I just forget what they're talking yeah. about. And it's very, uh, I can't really keep it stable in my mind. But when I was going through and reading it, I, I came across the sewer and the signified and the sign and, and the, the absence versus presence, a lot of this thing. And it suddenly I had this insight of why they use, why the activists use, especially the racial activists use, the word bodies to describe themselves. Because they're no longer – they're, 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 they're uh, signifiers in a system, right? They're, could, would mm-hmm. you – does that make sense? Like could you use that – why do the activists use bodies and does that relate to – post-structuralism or deconstruction or some sort of linguistic um, tie-in? Oh, God, I'm sure it is. So the reason I haven't done bodies, bodies is a term that will be in the encyclopedia. I haven't done bodies yet is because like you do with post-structuralism, as I also have done with post-structuralism, I can never remember why they do the bodies thing. Mm -hmm. I literally can't make that I look it up, I figure it out again, and then it's like I kind of trace it. Was it, oh, well, Foucault said this and whatever, and then I kind of forget. And so I only have a very vague notion okay. about the bodies thing. Um, I had it at one but point. But it reminded well, me of it, this. It, it goes back to this predeterminism of the world where you're you're only a signifier for the, the you know your whiteness or your blackness. Like we're all just a bunch of billiard balls. We have no agency. We have no responsibility. Therefore, any sort of civility or honor or hard work doesn't really matter. You just go forward and, and crash as much as you can. That's what I, I mean. That feel. that makes that makes sense on on a level for sure. There's probably a, a straighter line to draw, if I'm not mistaken, into the strategic essentialism uh, view. <laughs> so, strategic essentialism was an idea that came up in post-colonial theory first from Gayatri Spivak, and I don't know if I'm mm-hmm. saying that that name correctly, but here we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. The idea there was that, you know, um, a colonizing group would come in or you could think of a powerful group and they would essentialize the group that they're they're oppressing and say, oh, well, they're just like this. They're superstitious or they're ignorant or they're what, you know, and they would come up with a set of stereotypes and essentialize the group that way. And so obviously this is considered bad and it's some it's a big target for all of this social justice theory for actually decent reasons without having to bring up the irony of the fact that they might be doing this big time themselves. Yeah. So Gayatri Spivak came up with this idea called strategic essentialism, where she said that you could actually um, take up like the minority group itself, the oppressed group itself can take up those stereotypes and use them back on the people trying to oppress them. Like 
uh, it's a very passive aggressive way to fight. You could imagine like you accidentally are arguing with your spouse and this is not a true story. Um, you could uh, be arguing with your spouse and you say, blah, 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 well, that's stupid, blah, 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 blah. And then later in the, the argument, you say, oh, well, we could just, you know, whatever. And then your spouse very angrily with you says, I don't know, maybe I'm too stupid for that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. use it okay. back yeah. against you. So th there's this idea that you can do that with like racial stereotypes and uh, you could actually get into those really easily with um, the whole thing like with uh, black people, especially in the South here being considered ignorant for so long um, mm -hmm. and that being a stereotype about them. Well, I don't know, boss, I'm too ignorant to, you know, just throw it back at them to, to disrupt the system and to force change. So, there, I mean, and of course, there is something to that. It's not totally like a bad idea or inappropriate. It is passive aggressive, more or less all the time. But uh, the bodies thing, there was definitely the idea that if um, if if black people were property under slavery, then the, they would be thought of in terms not of their humanity, but in just in terms of their body and its capacity to do labor. And you see a lot of that kind of language in the critical race theory stuff. And I'm pretty sure the black and brown bodies thing started there. And then it started to expand. It could also, though, have been drawn out of feminism where they talk a lot about, uh, you know, reducing women to their bodies from objectification and such. So where that, that actually came from, I haven't nailed down satisfactorily to where I can remember okay. it, which means I probably haven't nailed it down correctly. Uh, I can talk a little bit more about post-structuralism, though, because I, I haven't. I've tried to avoid doing the hard philosophical terms because I know that they'll get nitpicked to death and I just yeah. don't want to deal with it. I, yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm not afraid to go do them. I just don't want to deal with the, <laughs> the blowback. I know I'm going to get for those. Um, philosophers are hell bent on missing the point. Uh, and like they, you know, the 50,000 foot snapshot to give somebody an impression of something is never good enough and they just tear it and if they, i they really don't like me so they really go after everything i do but let's go ahead and set myself up to blow up on your podcast all right let's so post-structuralism is a reaction obviously to structuralism uh i hope that much at least is clear uh with it just from the word and so the what made it so i could start to understand post-structuralism was that i had to understand um structuralism a little bit first and Another thing that you want to bear in mind going into this is that a lot of like the language games that were getting played around the postmodern stuff, there's a reason that all the postmodernists are also kind of considered post-structuralists. And for the most part, they're not all, but for the most part, they rejected that label. They rejected postmodern. They're also post-Marxist. They rejected it. These are really post-people, post-post-post-everything. Um, Post-Marxist in the sense that they'd kind of given up on the idea that Marxism could work, hence skepticism of all meta-narratives because their meta-narrative failed too. And, you know, post-structuralist, uh, though, so structuralism has a lot to do with the idea that the way that societies organize, sociological objects organize, and the way that human psychology organizes within that has to do with the, the structures of mostly symbolic structures, language in particular, but also representation, imagery, and so on, which, you know, that's like media studies in, in general now, that, that those things create the structure, it's sort of that metaphor of the fish in water. So it's like the, the structure is the water that people don't realize that they should question. If you've heard the, you know, the fish in water and the other fish says, 
what's water <laughs> and then there's one has its mind blown or whatever i don't know something like that the idea is that that the language in the way that we talk about things that's our discourses and then the um way that we represent things the imagery that we we use produces kind of a context in which the society plays out and you know oh well you know the germans have a word for everything and that has this impact on the way they think and the chinese don't have a you know particularly advanced grammar and that has a different impact on the way they think through problems and it's very difficult to communicate this i mean there's a lot that's been said that the the greek philosophy was so much more advanced than roman philosophy because the greek language was flexible enough to allow people to express very nuanced and complex philosophical mm -hmm. ideas whereas the roman language was more suited to um highly efficient pragmatic order giving and you could see the societies that resulted uh, if i'm not mistaken you mentioned Saussure, uh, but I believe Levi-Strauss is where structuralism began. Mm -hmm. Structuralism is not particularly held in high regard anymore. Well, you had these people that were structuralists, and it was kind of really in vogue in the 50s, in particular in France. And so that's where you'd have like Louis Althusser, who was a contemporary and collaborator at times with, with Derrida, and he was uh, Michel Foucault's PhD advisor, who were structuralists. And they had this, what it means is that there became this huge focus on language, right? So structuralism in the shortest meme version is language matters a lot, and meaning how language itself is structured matters a lot that's the structure in structuralism is how language is structured the structure and a lot of, of that is based on dichotomies if i'm not uh incorrect that is correct the way that words relate to one another in pairs uh, so you know what's the difference between dog and wolf for one example you know you could mm -hmm. kind of just dig into all that space there and just talk about words and what's the Depends on what you mean by is. Uh, this whole kind of mm -hmm. thing got really, really, really developed and big there. And the post-structuralists became concerned that these these dichotomous pairs in language had power contained in them. Derrida was in particular very concerned with that. And so he wanted to start deconstructing the hidden power dynamics contained mm -hmm. in language. Like if the word woman comes from the word man or they exist in some hierarchical pair of man and woman as kind of two sides of human, then one of those is favored and one of those is subordinate. And that then translates out into society. So the structuralist view would kind of hold this. And the post-structuralist view would say that this is super important and needs to be deconstructed, needs to be taken apart. So post-structuralism would be the idea that we can move past that structuralist uh, influence on society. That, that the language itself structures how society is. So it's the idea of taking apart the influence that language has on how society structures itself. And that's post-structuralism. Um, so that's why you see people nitpicking at language and picking at words to such a huge degree now. Um, you, you the know, thing at the to, center to of all back this, to what we were saying, the side note, to harken back to what we were saying, it's in, in the, with phrase shifting, there's a, there's the elite term or the elite meaning, and then there's the common term. And, and you mm -hmm. can go back and forth, but there still is that hierarchy of like the insider knowledge and then the, the common parlance. That's, That's a good way to put it. But. 
No, that's a good aside. And in fact, it, you can there's good evidence that they did that stuff on purpose to make an elite language. Um, the original critical theorists, I can't remember which one, but I think it might have been Adorno, was hmm. talking. It was he was asked at one point why he used such complicated language. It could have been Horkheimer too. I can't remember which one it was. And his response was that the common language was was filled with all of the various hegemonic power that society produces. So they have to use this complicated, specialized language, this academic jargon, this elite language. It's so, just so obvious that they want to create a, their own hegemony. Like that's like, like it's right there. Like we're going to create something elite to fight elitism. It's, I don't know. To, to fight the wrong kind of elitism, but yeah, and then also to fight the rise of popular culture. I mean, if, if you really want to go backwards in context, okay. the rise of popular culture was one of the things that the critical theorists in the Frankfurt School and the postmodernists just freaking hated. They hated the idea that there was going to be this popular middle culture that wasn't going to have, you know, their idea was that all the peasantry, it wasn't like, oh, peasants, you need to stay peasants. They didn't have that kind of a view. They were, you know, they're really interested in the unfairness of power. Their view was that yeah. all the peasants could be raised up to, to high status. And then yes. what happened was the, the capitalists subverted that by producing things that they wanted to watch like football and beer commercials. And, <laughs> Their plans to get everybody into Monet were mm. foiled again, you know, okay. because, yeah. oh, we'd rather watch, you know, whoever dance around with a hamburger, and we would. Yeah. Okay, we, we got off track, but you were talking about the hierarchies and Derrida and and pulling mm -hmm. these things apart within the context of post-structuralism. How did post-structuralism eventually lead the way to theory or critical theory? Oh. Since what I was actually, it's really funny that you pulled that off perfectly because it's exactly where I was about to go before we took our little aside. Um, so the word theory, if you follow the scholar uh, Brian McHale, um, the word theory actually refers to uh, essentially the condensation of critical theory under post-structuralism. Uh, it really, it is that phenomenon. Uh, it was no longer going to be, you know, the theory of this or the theory of that. I think that's how McHale phrases it. But within this post-structural view, it was just going to be the theory, a theory of everything, but not specifically the theory of everything, just theory. And so what you have in critical theory is a very complicated idea because in theory, I should say it's a complicated idea because, because critical theory means a variety of different things and it's kind of all of those at once and none of them in specific. Uh, so what you have is the critical theory of the Frankfurt School, which was this very radical activism. Um, it's formally neo-Marxist thinking or sometimes people call it culturally Marxist thinking. Uh, the idea that the that rather than the capitalists controlling everything and the capitalist class needing to be overthrown by the proletariat, that instead you had the the capitalist and the well, the bourgeoisie in general producing a hegemonic culture, an elite culture that then conditions the masses to not want to have different things. And so that's the idea with critical theory, capital C, capital T, out of the Frankfurt School kind of in the shortest expression. And so you had that theory, and then you had postmodern theory, which was ultimately post-structuralist uh, post theory, uh, 
kind of in a really mishmashed way. And then you mix in some literary criticism or literary theory and, and uh, Marxian conflict theory. And then all these things kind of mash together and become just theory. That's why they don't have to have theory of this or theory of that. You have theory because it's a lot of different theory based views at once, all of which are critical in their orientation. Um, so I used to say that theory was a was a contraction of postmodern critical theory and the philosophers lost their minds because they were like, oh, you can't have postmodern critical theory. The postmodernists and the critical theorists didn't like each other. And in the 1960s, that was true. They didn't like each other and they didn't like the way that they did. Each one did the thing. And that's so irrelevant. The point is that the that they both use the idea of critique in the same way, which is to. Okay pick apart power structures and one used the post-structuralist view that it had everything to do with language you know Derrida was utterly concerned with the system of language itself Foucault was was concerned with the way that language is used to prop up knowledge or to define what is and is not knowledge and then that is used to enforce political power so much so that he saw them as the same thing so you had this this different view there, but the idea was still at the heart in all the cases that there are illegitimate uses of power that are conditioning the masses that need to be picked apart. This is all, whether it's post-Marxism or neo-Marxism or whatever, it's all the same still kind of Marxian critique, uh, as Marx phrased it, where the term came from, ruthless critique of everything that exists. Post-structuralist version came up in France uh with the postmodern thinkers post-structuralism and postmodernism as a philosophy as like an approach to philosophy are nearly synonymous they're not perfectly synonymous but they're nearly synonymous um it's different when you get to art and so on uh and postmodernity is a you know condition of the world that we live in it's yet again different but the idea was that all of this kind of crap coalesced and kind of simplified into this thing that was that they just got called theory and then it all kind of married together in the I don't know, late 80s and early 90s so you had the kind of the fusion of critical theory and postmodern theory and um feminist theory and black liberation theory and you can just start you know naming your various theories yeah. and they all took I up a very so. literary the, the the reliance on literary criticism Literary theory actually ties straight into that post-structuralist thing because it makes it where language becomes one of the most necessary sites to to dig in and deconstruct and change the way people and think. I really do think that that is because this is cycle. I'm I'm projecting right now, and I'm not an expert, but it, it feels like if you treat everything like a text, you get to be superior to the text. You can you can assume the critical stance that I am outside of the yeah. story. I'm, I, right. I'm the one who is who is uh, I am the one who's retelling the story, who's 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 defining the true discourse here. It's a it's a way of, right. of removal uh, by means of engagement. Yeah, it's 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 like becoming too cool for the thing uh, and then being able to have your high minded criticism apply to it because you're too good for it um, and you're you're above it. So definitely, definitely the thing. It also empowers uh people in the theoretical humanities to be able to take on science, which, you know, they always want to do. Mm. Um, the turf war between philosophy and science is not 
gone away. And this is, mm-hmm. in some sense, part of that. Uh, that turf war it used to be that philosophy was the kind of, you know, the source for the best thinking on everything. And then science started to displace it. And um, there's always mm-hmm. been a lot of resentment there. So you start to see, uh, especially these so-called postmodern philosophers and i say so-called because it really stretches the meaning of the word philosopher to include them and they didn't necessarily consider themselves philosophers uh foucault considered himself a historiographer i forget what Mm -hmm. derrida considered himself something linguist or something i don't know Mm -hmm. um and so they uh but they they can they can sit outside the science story and, and and take a crap on that yeah. With this post-structuralist stuff, they can say, oh, well, science is just another story, just like everything else. And then yeah. all of a sudden, science loses its massive, well-earned ability to say, no, we're actually describing features of objective reality in ways that even if they're not true in the kind of absolutist metaphysical sense they are true in the sense that pretty much everybody understands and they produce results that nobody can deny. Results and accuracy, which seems to be totally again, it goes back to it's like they're they're trying to claim the uh, the ability to be more accurate than that, which has been refined to be as accurate as possible. It's a way of, of standing over something. It's a way to, I mean, if you look at, for a different postmodernist, you look at Jean-Francois Lyotard, one of his biggest concerns was that um, we were losing small local narratives because we had these big sweeping meta-narratives like science that said this is how it is. And so, you know, the idea was based, and then you look at like Foucault was very, very interested in... um, in experience that experience your subjective experience was really pretty much everything and then you had derrida saying that meaning was infinitely deferred and basically talking about the the idea that that meaning is something that only kind of exists within you so it subjectifies everything hence radical yeah. subjectivism being kind of the the core of this and it's a sort of a way to kind of you know tap back into that i mean besides tapping into narcissism it's a way to kind yeah. of tap back into that you know, kind of mystical, magical feeling that comes along with, you know, the self-importance of your own stories and mini narratives and, okay. and whatever else. Yeah, that's the that's what I kind of wanted to shift the conversation towards is because what I've been studying, what I've been ex- exposing is the behaviors that are the result of this and what we encounter on mm-hmm. Twitter, what we encounter in these arguments, what we encounter with these uh, various people who are just acting outlandishly, outlandishly narcissistic, like psychotic even. Um, yeah. How do how does when, once these ideas um, become a part of somebody's worldview, they become a part of somebody's character and and then it becomes manifested in their behavior and i wonder on on uh, on some level if if you see that and if you think that there's a way of approaching philosophy and the organization of knowledge that will produce better characters or will produce better just discourses i guess which is a form of behavior between two people i mean i think that the that's very likely to be true, at least on certain levels. Um, I don't mean to sound elitist myself, but the reality is that the majority of people that I come in contact with on a daily basis don't care about any of this. <laughs> they don't want to have to care about any of this. And I feel like more power to them. But certainly you do have the problem that 
you know, the norms in society do actually achieve something. You can take, I was listening uh, recently, uh, I'm going to get in trouble even for confessing this, but I was interested to listen to Heather McDonald when she sat down with Dave Rubin recently. And she was talking about how queuing, getting in line for things in an orderly fashion is a marvel of a norm that you just don't want to have break down. And so having norms around discourse and norms around knowledge generation, norms around what qualifies somebody for as expertise, those will definitely produce different situations, different systems and different behaviors. So for example, speaking of evergreen, as you know, we're both very familiar with that story. There's that kind of harrowing scene where Brett is being yelled at. Brett Weinstein's being yelled at by the students about the racism, blah, blah, blah. And he makes the fatal mistake of asking for evidence and people go berserk saying that, you know, that that that's just proof that he doesn't live it and all of this other stuff. So there's this idea then that that's come up within theory that's very heavily pushed within theory. That's very deeply theorized. It's common to their literature in nearly every source you come across that one's not just experience having lived something, but that the interpretation that one has for your own subjective experience constitutes a kind of high level expertise. Meanwhile, also heavily theorized is this idea that, um, Genuine expertise, science, reason, orderliness, as you see in the as you put out in the video about the Washington State Task Equity Task Force, right? The guy says that you know, can we move on with the agenda? And he's like, it's white supremacy talking through my mouth to stay on a schedule or whatever. And it's like, holy crap, those kinds of things can be cast as just another story that don't have any bearing on reality and that they they constitute only the kind of evidence that white people should or westerners or eurocentric people or whatever should value versus this lived experience that they can't possibly understand. So what it does is it creates mm. this situation where where not just and this is so important to understand it's not People are not telling you their lived experience when they say, I live and breathe racism or whatever every day. They're not telling you their lived experience. They're telling you their interpretation of the lived experience. And that matters. It's it, that as much as they want to say it's always true that you can't be objective. We can't get too objective. Well, guess what? You also can't tell anybody your lived experience. You can only tell people your interpretation of your lived experience. So if you're going to play that game, we're going to play it all the way, and I'm going to beat you at it. Because the way I'm going to beat you at it is that your interpretation is influenced by that set of norms, that set of philosophies that you've taken on. And in this case, wokeness is actually one such thing. It's known more broadly as developing a critical consciousness, which means that you're interpreting it through critical theory. You are actually serving the theory rather than trying to establish it or offering evidence for it or something like that. So when we have a norm that says, no, wait, evidence is something that is available to everybody. Anybody can go check the evidence. It doesn't matter if they're white. It doesn't matter if they're black. It doesn't matter even if they're human. It doesn't matter if they're a machine. It doesn't matter anything that can actually understand the data can check the data. And if it really happened, they can arrive at the same conclusion that you know, ideal of objectivity, even if it's not reachable, Mm -hmm. when you have a norm of that, something outside of the subjective individual experience, 
then when Brett Weinstein stands up and says, well, what is the evidence that this campus is racist? Everybody has to stop and say, wait, what is it? Yeah. And the people who don't aren't taken seriously because they're not being serious. So those norms do matter and the philosophy behind them does matter. So when you have a radically subjectivist philosophy that my lived experience and my interpretation of it, especially if I happen to have certain identity markers, but not other ones, gives me a trump card over over your ability to understand things, then you're going to have the same kind of chaos you saw at Evergreen mm-hmm. because there's no way to resolve the conflicts that come up. And according to Marxian conflict theory, which is at the heart of theory, which I just brought up, is everything's a power struggle from the oppressed versus the oppressor. On the other hand, when you have a norm that there are in as many cases as possible, ways to devise an external standard to which we all have to defer equally and fairly, then you have a totally different system at hand. Um, mm. Science is the biggest obvious example of that, but you can even talk in law about the reasonable person standard. According to theory, there's no such thing as a reasonable person. We're all hopelessly cri- crippled by our biases and by our inability to see truth. There's no reasonable person. Well, the reasonable person standard is pretty important when it comes to adjudicating certain things in law. It's not what is your interpretation of what happened and what should happen as a result of it. It's what would a reasonable person think about this? Well, if there is no reasonable person, that system is going to start getting corroded as well. <laughs> That's interesting. I, you made me think of uh, like a some city having the Ten Commandments on a on a pillar somewhere, like that that being their uh, their their norms, and and you can define God as this thing or that thing, but that's at the top, like that 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 hierarchy built there that that everybody can kind of uh, organize their lives around and stuff. I mean, yeah, it is actually a really you know. Uh, th- Utter scriptural authority is is a fairly simple means of trying to get people all on the same page like that. Um, I think there are better ones, obviously, but yeah, obviously, scriptural authority is it, it is a way to get people all on the same page. What you were saying about Evergreen um, actually really helps because I constantly have commenters in in the series say, well, "What actually happened? What is the actual problem? Like, could you, why don't they say what their problem is?" And and I I haven't said this explicitly, but they bring up the the, the professors bring up that it's not a question of what racist thing occurred or if racism occurred because it's always there like they, they say that explicitly i'm i'm ruining that line or we need to center the experiences of people of color and and they, they cannot be questioned you cannot question this uh, they they rope that off they section that off and when mm-hmm. you get to the protest and they start to voice their complaints it nothing it's it's nothing that actually happened. It's that there's an interpretation that's ruling over. It's a it's a psychosis, and it's a holographic psychosis where everybody has a little bit of this in their head, and everybody's holding on to the the tiniest shred of this this belief apparently that this college is racist or this racist thing happens. And and the the, the most explicit thing that I can find is that somebody drove by in a car and yelled a racist thing at somebody else like during the protest and that's why they feel so unsafe and 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 when they get to and, and another thing that that's 
totally baffles me is that they want the administration to provide them security and to provide them safety, but they don't want to have any police around. They don't. They they at once want this power structure and they don't want the power structure at the same time, and it, it doesn't actually add up. So what they end up doing is that when George comes before them and acquiesces to as much demands as possible, um, as as he's legally allowed to to give them, they still devolve the in this in this meeting that I'm going to be treating next, they devolve into just yelling at him and processing him again and, and flaying him again and just going on this eternal struggle session for some reason, because there's nothing else to do. There's no other way to feel safe other than expressing the fear that you have. Yeah, yeah. That, and sadly, that's actually, of course, your philosopher friends will, will tell us I have it all wrong. But that's ultimately what's at the heart of critical theory. And the reason they'll tell me I have it all wrong is they're going to say, well, you, you go back and look at the Frankfurt School. They were, you know, Marcusa may have been wrong about this or that, or he may have been. Uh, Marcusa was late in the Frankfurt School, too. But he uh, might have been wrong about this or that, or you could agree or disagree he with him. But repressive say, tolerance was his. Repressive tolerance. That's right. It's exactly right. That's what what they've tried to re- replace Popper's paradox of tolerance with is Marcuse's repressive tolerance. Um, get rid of get rid of reasonable ideas of tolerance in a liberal system. So Marcuse, though, was an intellectual, and Walter Benjamin was an intellectual, and Max Horkheimer was an intellectual, and Theodore Adorno was an intellectual. These men were all geniuses, and they were definitely intellectuals. But you can actually watch an interview done with Marcuse in the mid-'70s. He's very old. He's getting close to his death. And he is decrying the movement, the new left is what it was called, the movement that he ultimately had started about how anti-intellectual it had become. And so when you say, oh, well, the original critical theorists weren't that anti-intellectual like this and they would hate it. Well, yeah, but that's what happens when you let your bad idea out into the world is you can't rely upon that, like the seven best philosophers are the only people who are going to speak for it. The the pressure test of an idea, of an ideology in the world is what happens when, when the rabble get a hold of it. And when the rabble get a hold of critical theory, the idea is anything that hurts my feelings, anything that I can complain about, anything that I can attach to a problematic power structure must be destroyed. And it doesn't matter if it conflicts. It doesn't matter if you actually have to have the thing. I mean, it's not it's it, it, this is a bad analogy and I'll get called out for it and I probably deserve it. But I'm going to say it anyway. It would be as if somebody identified critical theory would be as if somebody identified that the brakes in your car slow your car down and then complained about the fact that brakes slow the car down and that there shouldn't be brakes because cars aren't meant to be slowed down. They're meant to go. And then when they take the brake out of the car, somebody you know who really knows better is like, uh, okay, and finally gives up. They get sick of being called whatever name. And they take the brakes yes. out and the car crashes. They're t- well, you, you know, the car shouldn't have an accelerator that lets it go that fast. And, da, da, da. and at the end, all you'd really be left with is like a fake car that sits there and doesn't do anything. But even then, you've taken away my ability to go. You've taken a bit away. But that's all yes. it can do. So that's why yes. you see this, like these shouting. It's, uh, it's all it can do. And th- now that's the thing, like in. That's like pure crystal meth form of critical theory. That's not most activists employing it most of the time aren't total 
particle theory robot morons who are just constantly doing that. But on mass, when you have a group of activists who are taken up with this, you can bet one of them sooner or later is going to stumble upon that explanation. Like, for example, my favorite one at the moment, which will change next week, is that uh, people of color was a term invented by white people so they could ignore the fact that there are different colors of people who aren't white. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know who invented the word people of color. Apparently it was a white person and then whoops. It's just so you can ignore that there are different colors and white people can go along just lumping all non-white people into one box. And so <laughs> somebody's going to think of the problematic eventually. And yes. then if you have that, that activist mentality that's ready to go to war yes. on behalf of somebody complaining about something, a lot of them will take it up and it'll become a next cause for activism. And it yeah. literally is like living in a South Park episode. I can't get the picture yeah, no. out of my head of, you know, rabble, 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 rabble. and Dirk, you took our job, Dirk, and of course they weren't criticizing um, the left with those particular memes either. They were criticizing the right yeah. with those memes. So the activists who are sufficiently motivated will pick this stuff up. And if the, the mentality is who can come up with the hottest take the biggest hot problematic about why everything's not perfect. And we're going to put that person on a pedestal until we decide we hate them and cancel them because they have money now or something. Uh, if that's going to be the norm, then it's going to be constant Lord of the flies. It's going to be constant. Well, I was going to say constant anarchy, but it's perpetual revolution. It's actually the, yeah. the name for it in their literature. Mm-hmm. So what uh, what do you postulate would be a good system? Why why would liberalism be better when the normies get a hold of it? You said the rabble, but let's just use the the, the contemporary. The normies. normies. Yeah. What yeah, happens yeah, when, the, when normies. the normals? Let's use a different yeah. slang. Um, so liberalism has has its ups and downs. Liberalism is not a perfect system, and what happens though is that we do set ourselves up for a a situation in which genuine progress can occur, that progress is slow, that progress is sawtoothed, that progress, meaning it sometimes has setbacks, which can be significant. Uh, liberalism, unfortunately, as you often hear, you know, people like Ben Shapiro, facts don't care about your feelings, and then people come back with feelings don't care about your facts, which both of those turn out to be true um, <laughs> as it happens. Um <laughs> Whoops. Uh, but but the reality is, is that liberalism doesn't care about anybody. <laughs> it, it doesn't. And so the people who are losing in liberalism definitely feel like in a liberal system, feel like okay. the system is really not looking out for them where it should be. And so okay. and the, the point is that liberalism doesn't care about anybody. Uh, Could you I explain particularly, that? Why, if I, what do you think? What do you mean? Because a liberal system, a liberal system is one that actually is is subjected to subjecting itself to uh, just kind of the open-ended evolutionary process. Everybody's welcome to, f- if in a purely open-ended liberal, classically liberal system, everybody's willing to or uh, able to put out their opinion and have the idea discussed on its merits with absolutely no concern of who said it and anything like that. So everybody's treated completely equally. Justice is blind. Um, it could be, you know, Tiny Tim shouting out the true thing, or it could be, you know, the world's greatest expert. And we all love that story where the, like, moron overturns the genius or whatever. It's one of the, the top story tropes of the universe now. And um, you could put that at the liberalism head of card studies. 
Yeah, exactly. At the top of TARD studies. <laughs> that's, that's the banner <laughs> phrase on the aims and scope of the new journal. Um, <laughs> in liberalism, though, there is nobody who has special authority given to them. And nobody. Everybody okay. is kind yeah. of on an equal like playing field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, sort of. If it were, were perfectly done. And so there's not to say, actually, that perfectly done liberalism, uh, pure classical liberalism, what libertarians in some cases might be looking for is perfect either. But you can actually argue for, say, a progressive approach to liberalism or a conservative approach to liberalism. And then you have a means of resolving the conflict. So this is actually the core, right? So why does liberalism work as a system is because what liberalism is, is a conflict resolution system that tries as much as possible to take the personal out of it. And that's why it doesn't care about anybody, right? Mm. So it tries to take the personal interest out of it. We're, we're, we set up a legal system where we try to be as objective as possible and rely on things like reasonable person standards, preponderance of evidence, beyond reasonable doubt, and so on, and actually defer to the evidence. We have a scientific system that absolutely depends on falsification, and that which is considered provisionally true is that which hasn't been falsified yet. And... Uh, you know, there are other measures that come into that as well. Within capitalism, we try to take, well, I deserve money because this, that, and the other thing. No, no, no. You actually have to produce a product that people want. And if you do, people will give you money. P.S. You can give New Discourses money. I would like that. And <laughs> I'll produce a product for you. If you don't like it, don't give me any money. Um, capitalism always wins. I'm going to be rich. So uh, anyway, when you try to take the, the the idea behind liberalism is that you try to minimize the personal as much as possible, and not everybody likes that, uh, especially yeah. people who aren't coming out really good. And it's not to say like unfettered capitalism. I'm not saying like unfettered liberal equals good. Unfettered capitalism not good. In fact, really bad. You got to have some regulations. We do have every reason to believe that certain things like utilities, for example, are better regulated uh, at the level of almost. Either either utility regulation or like state ownership, um, hmm. mixed economies they call them. So unfettered capitalism, bad. You get monopolies. The monopolies team up, and then we're all screwed because you basically create a a new de facto government out of yeah. super rich five super rich people who own all the things and work together. Unfettered democracy. Democracy is the liberal political organization. Unfettered democracy doesn't work either. You actually want to have a Republican system, and I don't mean that you should go vote for the the GOP. That's not what I'm talking about. Republican system, the the voters decide upon <clears throat> experts uh, of a kind <laughs> via elections <laughs> who are then going to go in and represent people at the level of actual decision making. So we we use a, a democratic process to elect lawmakers and then the lawmakers go and actually make the lawmaking decisions, ideally, you know, that they actually are specializing in and are knowledgeable about. Um, and the voters have the power to decide they want to vote for people who are good at that or bad at that. But Republicanism, divided powers, multi-party situations, uh, different uh, branches of government. These are all necessary correctives to raw democracy, which just turns into mob rule. And when you talk about it with knowledge, free speech, everybody should be able to say what they should say. And I think actually the core challenge that we're dealing with right now and one that that postmodernism is really bad about is expertise matters, but expertise can matter too much. And answering the question of how we legitimize expertise and take expertise seriously in the right way without 
basically making a priest class out of a certain kind of experts who could be and are wrong, but without denying the fact that having, say, spent 25 years studying a thing does qualify you to speak upon it with more authority than, um, you know, Joe the plumber, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. I don't mean no, that's call a, out the that's, specific you, person. You're quoting D'Angelo, aren't you? Because that's what she says at her Evergreen. Uh, when somebody really? asks about, I'm not racist. She's like, you have to trust me. I have 25 years of talking about this and oh. thinking about this. And, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have the guy off the street fix your pipes. You wouldn't right, fix your is. own pipes. You call in the, you call in the plumber. So, right. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is this is actually critical methods are, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, I wouldn't have thought to say this. And this is one of the things that I really want to make clear with new discourses is that critical methods are a shortcut to false expertise. You don't actually have to understand the system at all. You can just go complain about, oh, here's racism here, there's racism, here's racism, and racism can work like this. And you never have to defer to evidence because if the evidence says you're wrong, you can say that the evidence was correct, collected under a racist system or analyzed by a racist system. So you never have to say you were wrong. And then you look, well, I've I've written about the same thing in a circle for 25 years. I'm an expert on this circle. Uh, Yeah. But, yeah, it, it's okay, like yeah, Ducamp's you uh, urinal, right? It's like the urinal it trumps all artistic uh, namby-pamby uh, judgment. Like once you put the urinal yep. in a museum, everything becomes no better than that urinal. Uh, in a oh, way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Unless, unless, yeah. unless you stole it from another culture, then it deserves to, you know, a, a different form of respect. But, but I mean, and when I say that critical theory is a shortcut to false expertise. Um, again, let me go back all the way to these guys who, um, were intellectuals. So let me go back to to Max Horkheimer, 1937, wrote a treatise called, called traditional and critical theory. And he outlined the differences between a critical theory and a traditional theory and a traditional theory in kind of the short meme version. The point of a traditional theory is to understand how a thing works and all the various parameters around it. The point of a critical theory, however, is to show how it falls short of the normative vision that the critical theorists have for society. And that's easy. It's literally easy to sit back and say, well, didn't work. That didn't work. It's the same. It is literally the same thing I said about the car, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. to sit back and just say what's not good enough about stuff is really easy. And if you happen to be aggrieved, as you'll find a lot, it's kind of funny the number of times you find people write about this in this critical literature where they say, oh, I tried to publish all of these papers and nobody would take my papers. And they said they weren't very good. So I started my own journal. (laughs) It's like, uh, okay, you're not good at what you were doing. You're not that good at physics. So now you're going to go bitch about physics. And you're going to say that the reason you weren't good at physics is because physics is inherently operating as whiteness or some baloney or that it employs white empiricism. Do you see a resolution occurring then between critical theory and uh, I I guess the new traditional theory or this, this other set? No, not a resolution. I don't see a resolution. I see it as going to be increasingly necessary because the seduction to do to using critical methods it's like the genie's out of the bottle the seduction to using those methods is really really high and the the trick to develop is to learn how to tell when it's happening Mm -hmm. and to you know 
basically, if you will, kind of create a special folder, you know, like we'll file your complaint. <laughs> Not quite the trash can, but that, you okay, know. So you don't even subvert it. You just uh, parenthesize it. I think I'm using some term, academic term, and you kind of ignore it or you don't give it. I mean, I think that's what that's what's going to have to happen. Yeah, is we're going to have to have a, hmm. a norm start to develop where. If your theory, I'm sorry, if your if your your critique isn't highly informed critique that takes into account the way the thing works, why it's supposed to work, etc., not just based on are you a lawyer, are you a physicist, but it's actually a properly engaging critique, then um, it's just complaint, and I can fully say that even about my own stuff that I've done. Like there are there are pieces of work that I've done that are are literally just kind of critical or rhetorically critical of say critical theories or critical social justice. And, you know, I think the society's bearing this out right now. There was a moment for that at the very beginning to open the discussion. And now it's not cool. It's not interesting anymore. People who are actually trying to go read and engage the literature, not on the term that they use for engage, which means to agree with it, but uh, who are actually trying to learn, well, what does critical race theory say? Why does it say it? People are really trying to understand it. They're going to carry so much more truck right now than anyone else. And that's the direction we're going. The people who just get on you know, their podcasts or they get on their, their YouTube channel or the social media or whatever it happens to be, TV show, and they're like, ah, oh, the left, ah, oh, the left, ah, oh, the left. No one cares. We're done complaining. Okay, we yeah. got the point. Something's broken. Something's wrong. Yeah. The the a norm of genuine engage because that was critical th- critical critical theory is what it was. There's critical theory or what how do I say it's critical critical theory studies. Um mm-hmm. so, studies. yeah, critical yeah. Critical critical studies studies. studies. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> critical, critical study studies. That's right. But you're, you're, so you're um, advocating for, so, and that's what I was advocating when I started to look at the Washington legislature. It's that we're no longer talking about purple haired screaming people in the street. We are now talking about lawmakers instituting this across the state, across the nation, within our uh, you know judicial system. We need to start to get engaged. And and the critique of critique needs to go to the next level beyond to the next you know, level, right. You have to be able when when the woman in the so you mentioned those things. Let me just throw in school systems. Holy crap! And even to some degree, medical uh, schools are taking this up now. And what comes down from that, I don't know. But to back back up, when the woman in the Washington State Task Force, the Equity Task Force, says that equity means disrupt plus dismantle, it's probably pretty important, A, to take her seriously, and B, to start wondering, what do those words mean? Why is she saying that? Why would she say that? What? Where do those words come from? What is the context in which that sentence, equity equals disrupt plus dismantle, we know what that means, but not everybody knows what that means. What is the context in which that sentence makes sense? And we need people who can make sense of that sentence and then show up to the meetings where these things happen or call their lawmakers or show up at their kids' school board meeting or whatever it is and just be able, not even individuals, like ideally there'd be groups of people doing this, coming and just kind of, no, wait, here's what you're saying. This is what it means. And ideally with cameras on them where it's public and it's going to be able to be disseminated, people have to actually understand what these these things mean. That's why I'm building that encyclopedia is to start showing people what these freaking words mean 
so that they can actually go and engage the resources right now and until you know this uh, helen and i have cynical theories coming out in june now it got delayed a little bit oh no um well, if anybody wants to blame anybody, no, I won't put the name. I will. It's Alan Sokol. Alan Sokol got very excited about it and issued a lot of suggestions for improvement that we decided to take. So we delayed it by a month. That's actually Thanks, awesome. Alan. Then. <laughs> it's really awesome. It's super cool. It's it's like the best, uh, like thousands and thou- like 20,000 words of suggestions. It's like, Jesus. oh, my God, Alan, help. What are you doing? No, it was good, though. He helped a lot. Um, he, he did tighten some things up. So it's been delayed a, about a month. But. But uh, between that, like the resources right now are primarily people. You have to just go read. There's a handful of podcasts talking about it. You're doing stuff. Mike Nain is doing some stuff. But for the most part, you have to go read the primary literature, which is hard. It is academic level stuff. And it's tiring to read. It's hard to figure out what to read. There's so much of it. And then it's hard to parse. Um, there's nothing or not much. There's a little bit starting to come out that bridges the gap. And there's a little bit that has been trying to bridge the gap, but there's very little stuff. So, you know, luckily again, why Robin D'Angelo is my favorite critical theorist. Um, people ask me, what should I read? And I'm like, go get every book you can find that Robin D'Angelo wrote and just read them. And then they start sending me incessant strings of DMS. Thank you. If you are listening, um, telling me, holy crap, I can't believe it really says this. Whoa, this is what they really think. And it's, she's writing it in plain language, but believes it. And I'm writing it in plain language, but don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And she is helping me a lot. But there's not a lot out there yet that equips people with the tools to be able to show up and answer a statement like equity equals disrupt plus dismantle in real time or to call their lawmakers or to call their state lawmakers or to call the governor and say, what the heck? I know what this means. I Here's the recording of this person saying this. Equity equals disrupt plus dismantle. I know what this means. This is what this means. And be correct about that. When, you can, when people start being able to do that, Mm-hmm. Then we're going to see some stuff start changing real quick. We're going to see the, the the woke left is going to start losing its grip really fast. And we can start talking, A, about you know resurrecting a more reasonable left as a counterpoint to what's going on on the right. B, we can start actually having real conversations about the issues that they right now are hoarding to themselves on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Such as racism, sexism, uh, poverty, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. It's like somebody asked me recently, you know, don't why do you deny the existence of systemic racism? And I said that I I don't I don't know whether there's systemic racism. And that's the problem. It depends on what you mean by systemic racism. If you mean the common like the most common thing I run into is that that disparate outcomes along racial lines occur. Uh, okay. Um, I'm not using that as a definition for systemic racism. That's not a satisfactory definition for systemic racism. You say, oh, well, there's institutional racism. I'm like, that's okay. Is there? Show me. Show me what you mean. And again, if it's just disparate outcomes occur, that's not good enough. But if there was actually a law or something, there are a policy that, that's actually racist, you should probably t- be taking that to court because it turns out we actually have constitutional me- constitutional amendments that pre- prevent that from happening now. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, I mean, and that's those are old ones, by the way. They're not brand new. <laughs> those have been around for 150 some odd years. Um, so... You know, we've got uh, 
a lot of different things to talk about. Is it cultural racism? Well, what's cultural racism? This is a vague idea. That's really vague. Oh, white people don't like black culture or something. Oh, how do you know? Like, what are you talking about? You know, and then if they use a black hairstyle or they eat soul food or something, they're culturally appropriating and it's a problem. Like, no, come on. Mm. So we've got to be able to start having clear conversations about these things. And I don't know if there's systemic racism. If people are like, oh, come on, look at the legal system. Look at all the people in jail. Well, you're talking about disparate outcomes. It's not enough for me because I know how those are being interpreted under the doctrine of, of systemic racism. I'm not denying that there's a problem that might be there. I'm denying that we have a good way to find Find out if there's a problem because it's been ruled over by stuff that's too sloppy to do the job. And I mean, I even have people email me. They tell me about their research. And speaking of criminal justice, where they find, you know, somebody does a study, they find out uh, there was no racial bias in police use of lethal force or something like this. They publish a study and uh, activists go berserk trying to get them to have their PhDs taken away, paper retracted, all their other papers retracted. So if that's the the scene, like you can't even publish legitimate research, even even if the research isn't right, the answer to dealing with it isn't let's scream about it until it, it gets taken down. It is to do more research. It's to search for methodological flaws. There are actual ways of, of there are better ways and worse ways of going about this. And the screaming way and the refusing to publish things that go against the grain way is a bad way and it's gonna lead to, to bad results. Um so yeah, it's like we need to be able to have real conversations. If people ask me, you know, I, I read about systemic racism literally every day. And the more I read about it, the less able to take this in for a second. The more I read about systemic racism in the critical race theory literature, the less able I am to determine if it's really happening, because I see so many reasons to doubt the interpretation in the critical race theory literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, it goes back to that interpretation. That, that reading that, of that's the thing the text kind of thing that is the thing and so you know that's that's one of the main objectives of of translations from the wokish the social justice encyclopedia is to to make it clear that this is actually a worldview this is a it's not a word or you know it's not oh they use the word racism funny no 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 they have an entire yeah. like lexicon of words that they use kind of in interrelated fashion that it's a discourse where the the shades of meaning all reflect another. So like when they say that anti-racism requires authentic engagement across racial lines, it doesn't usually occur to people that the words authentic and engagement have specialized use there too. Uh, yeah. And they yeah. actually mean that you have to agree with them. What is let's let's dive into that for a second. Engagement is theorized so heavily, so just those two terms in like the shortest version, engagement is theorized so heavily that if you have come to a different conclusion uh, than what the critical social justice literature or activist believes, then you must not have engaged it properly. So engagement means agreement. Authentic. What does an authentic relationship across racial lines mean? I was even talking to, to Mike Nana about this last night um because how frustrating it is so for those who don't know if anybody doesn't know mike name is half black so there's a racial difference across my friend and i and um so i'm talking to mike and i was like these people 
literally believe that for you and I to have an authentic friendship, we have to bring up the issues of race that you face all the time. And then I have to just acknowledge that and accept whatever you're saying is true. And we have to talk about it a lot. A lot. And I'm not to ask for education, but anytime you feel like expressing it, it's important. And if we're not doing that, our relationship's not authentic. So you can't have an authentic relationship across racial lines unless one of the main things you talk about is racism all the time. And Mm -hmm. in a way where the white person just agrees. And it doesn't matter, by the way, you know, that say, if we're talking about disparate outcomes, that South and East Asians outperform white people here, the white person still somehow got the power. And um, no. Okay, but so when they say anti-racism means that you requires a commitment to authentic engagement across racial lines, the words <laughs> race, authentic, and uh, so anti-racism, I should say, race, authentic, and engage are all specialized terms that have specialized meanings. They mean yeah. something specific by it that you wouldn't ever guess unless you spent hours and hours and hours and hours reading their literature and finally it starts to click like when they say engage it means something it means something funny mm-hmm. ultimately when you unfortunately that's what i've done when you I spent hours and hours <laughs> and hours in their literature when you step out into their interpretive space and and you take a step back and you start to use their interpretations to be above whatever it is you're interpreting, and then you follow through on the story that they create out of the story at hand, it's some of the stupidest, worst kind of story. As literature, it doesn't hold up. Like, if you try to write a movie about two people who only could talk about, like, the power structure, it wouldn't work. It would never work outside of the context when- of their little... And then when people don't go see the movie, it would just be more proof of how little white people want to talk about race yeah. authentically. They don't really want to engage. So they Maybe. produce a shadow text. Hmm. I mean, it's, it is. It's set up to where no matter what, they've got the explanation for why they they hmm. were the ones that were superior. You, it's like the thing that just happened in Montana. They had a Martin Luther King Day essay contest because many of the black students complained that they had to do all the heavy lifting about racism on campus, which I'm sure it's a super racist campus. Like every college campus is so racist. And so the black students said, well, we have to do all the anti-racism work around here. So we need to come up with something that gets other people engaged. So they, one of the, it's like, I don't know, the ethnic studies or something comes up with something relevant to African-American studies or something comes up with a Martin Luther King essay contest, puts it out on campus, Let's. It was. This was written about in the Wall Street Journal. It was really good. Um, turns out six people entered. They're all white. So you think, oh well, that would be good because the idea was to get white people to engage with the ideas of Martin Luther King, right? Now, no, it meant the winner was going to be white. So a Martin Luther King Day contest essay contest was won by white people, even though they were the only ones, <laughs> the only ones who who entered. And then the fact that only white people entered was something you know that was somehow its own kind of problem and then when like people in the 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 black student center or whatever it was that put the contest on it's like they tried to get those students to enter and they said that they wouldn't because they didn't feel like it was their job to have to explain it again and it's Hmm. just like Hmm. and then a white person all white people entered white person won what's the conclusion campus is systemically racist yeah because it gave, Mm -hmm. gave the award white and it's like the feeling that the books are cooked and that not only this isn't just useless, even if it weren't likely to get everything backwards and make all of our problems worse, which it does. 
the this is the kind of time wasting that just absolutely drains your ability to do anything else productive. So the net output, whether that's GDP, whether that's whatever the hell it has to be measured in, of a nation that takes on this critical method in mass, it becomes a significant part of what they do, is just really dumping resources into a black hole because you can't satisfy it. So you pour resources into it, and all it does is complain about the resources that you put into it. And you can't – it's just a waste of time and energy. If we are actually in a hyper-competitive geopolitical global environment right now between possibly rising superpowers, deciding to be one that's going to dump massive amounts of its resources into satisfying people who can't be satisfied is probably a stupid use of our limited resources. Hmm. Mm-hmm. James, um, I should let you get back to writing, but I have one last question for you. Do yeah. you have a cocktail recipe that you're willing to share with um, the population? We, you know, I have like 70 of them. What are we, what are we in the mood for? Well, let's go for, for, do you have anything with for, uh, either a rye or a, a gin? I'm thinking I've, I, I'm, I'm on a rye kick right now. Well, okay. So, I mean, you can, Yes, you can basically, obviously, if you're going to do something with rye, you're just asking for the simple classics with a little bit of a twist on them. You're going to want to do something in like the Manhattan universe or something like that. The secret to a good Manhattan, by the way, first of all, the 212 rule is wrong. Everybody says 212 because it's the New York area, Manhattan area code, right? So it's two whiskey, one sweet vermouth. Um, two dashes of bitters. No, this is baloney. <laughs> Don't do it. This is incorrect. And then stir over ice. In fact, I would say stir long over ice. Uh, garnish with a Luxardo cherry, or with a twist of orange or something, depending on what kind of one you. But the the, the two one two is wrong. It should be three one a lot. Uh, <laughs> six or five or six for the dashes of bitters. All right. So it should be three whiskeys. And ideally you're going to split those whiskeys. Uh, you're going to do two rye cause it's hot and a little bourbon to mellow it out. Um, oh. scotches and, and what do badly there. Irish whiskey does. Okay. So you're going to want, you're going to want two hot whiskeys, one regular or one mellow whiskey. If you can't, you can go all, all rye or all bourbon, whatever, no big deal, but it should still be a three to one ratio of booze to vermouth. And then the vermouth, here's the thing. Use the cheap kind. The uh the you know the twelve dollars for like a handle size bottle um yeah. makes a better Manhattan than something like the Dolan, which is like twenty five or thirty for a seven fifty. So um why is the cheaper if you better? do want to use more I don't know. It makes a better. It makes a better Manhattan. It's just the flavor profile, the extra sugar or whatever it is in it that makes the cheap one cheap is just better. And if you do want to class it up with better vermouth, a, do you have to go all the way to like our Carpano Antica solution? And b, you should still cut it like fifty fifty or two to one with um, the cheap stuff. And that will class up a Manhattan, but there's something magical about the cheap stuff. <laughs> Same thing, since you mentioned gin, applies in a Negroni. Um, the Negroni is a very simple cocktail. It is a three parts even mixture uh, of sweet vermouth, base spirit being gin here typically, and then 
the very bittersweet bright red Campari is the third ingredient. Equal parts. Add orange bitters. Um, stir very long over ice because it's, it's served over ice too. It's too sweet otherwise. Um, very mm. syrupy. So a secret to your most of your gin cocktails, and you're going to love this because you're on a gin kick, is that the best way to improve a gin cocktail is to take out the gin and put in tequila in its place. Reposado tequila always improves the gin, gin cocktail. Wait, which I do like tequila? gin, though. I've Reposado. Really? The kind in the middle. Not silver, not añejo. Reposado. Uh, replace all of your gin with Reposado tequilas and your gin cocktails get better. I've been drinking a lot of gin cocktails lately, though. Um, I've been been dipping in, let's see, what have I been having? The, the last word, I think that's a gin cocktail. I'm trying to remember. Uh, the aviation and variations on the aviation. Um, it's also a very good one. Uh, so, you know, there's stuff to look up if you want to look up some other ones. But the thing I will tell you is that the, 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 the basic Negroni takes a little a little acquiring the taste. One gin, one sweet vermouth, and you do want to use the good vermouth for that. Eh, the cheap vermouth is pretty good too. Though. Sweet and then one sweet, sweet, sweet. Okay. One, one gin, one sweet vermouth, one um, Campari. Add orange bitters, stir long over ice, really long over ice it needs to be diluted quite a bit and then um to kick it up you can actually do it with your rye too take that gin out replace the base spirit with other base spirits so it could be the it could be they're good with whiskey they're actually really good with whiskey i think they're best with tequila um pretty fantastic with tequila i haven't been, so, I haven't been you know, touching different. tequila at all so there's something that's well I, about it. I don't blame you on that either um, I tried, there is a variation on the Manhattan that uses green chartreuse because I've been diving into green chartreuse a little bit and I didn't like it that much. So maybe not that. Uh, I would tell you though, that the Manhattan basic Manhattan recipe, um, three, two, and then get a little heavy handed with the, with the bitters. And if you can get the Luxardo cherries, I'm not supposed to do Luxardo. commercials, but that's what you want. Well, I, I, I have some of those. What, what, what's your, do you have a bitters that's uh, appropriate there? I, I, I think I just use the standard kind right now, but. Yeah, I mean, I mostly just use the standard kind. Uh, that and or a mixture of orange bitters or plum bitters. Plum bitters are really good. Hmm. Um, I don't like to eat for Manhattans unless the whiskey really calls for it. And if you're using a rye, rye is usually spicy enough where it's a bad call. Uh I like. I don't like to use kind of the spicy bitters, the ones that have like cinnamon in them or that have been like mm. a, mm. bourbon barrel aged are almost always kind of spicy. Uh, usually just a straight up, you know, Angostura and orange bitters. But plum bitters are freaking beautiful. Fee Brothers has a really good inexpensive plum bitters that's uh, really, really good. If if uh, I may make a suggestion, you might want to think about adding a tab to new discourses called the lounge, where there's just the lounge and people can go and Cock. you know. I'll talk to the guys. That's actually a kind of a fun idea. That is a fun idea. So it's like, did my article drive you to drink? It could be like a link at the bottom of every one of them. 